Well, let me see a show of hands if as a child you were ever lost before, like you got separated from your parents. Let me see your hands. Okay, most of us, all right. Okay, no shame or judgment. If you're a parent in the room and you've ever lost your kid, let, let, me, see, let me see a show of hands. Okay, my hand's up. All right, some, some of you are scared. You're in church and you're lying, all right? You're just lying. I know you are. I know I'm not the only bad parent in here that's lost a child before, okay? Well, when I was growing up, when I was growing up, uh, I went to SeaWorld with my family and I got lost. I got separated from my family for a long time, for hours. And um, I was little and I just sat down on the curb and just cried and I just cried my eyes out. Nothing? That's where a crowd's supposed to say, oh, like... Man, you guys are heartless. I was a child. I was crying. You had no response there. Okay, well, anyways, my family, obviously, they, they eventually found me, and, uh, and, and I was okay. I was fine. Some of you, though, had that child where if you lose them, maybe you were like this, so if you lose them, they have no idea they're lost. Like, they're just fine. They're living their best life, right? And it's usually kids like that. I've got one of them in my house. You got no idea what's going on in their brains. Like, you're just like, what, what, who are, what is going on? in that, in that brain of yours. Like they, they get lost and they got no idea they're lost. They're just out there living their, their best life. Well, one day Jesus's parents lost him, but Jesus wasn't lost. He wasn't lost. He knew exactly where he was and he knew exactly where he was supposed to be. Jesus's parents thought he was lost, but he wasn't lost. Jesus didn't think he was lost. His parents thought he was lost, but Jesus was exactly where he was supposed to be. If you got your Bible, open up to Luke chapter two. We are gonna be in verse 41 through 52. And if you wanna follow along in our app, the verses will be on the screen here in a second, but follow along in our app. It's the City Church Love It. Click message notes, uh, the verses and the points. You can fill in the blank as we go. It's all there for you. But we, we are picking back up with our Luke series. And, and I didn't preach for like two weeks and I was stuck inside my house for like 10 days because uh, my wife had COVID and um, thankfully she, she's fine now and uh, we're out and about and we're, we're kind of back to life again. But, but I was about 10 days without preaching and without going out. And so I'm about ready to explode. So we're gonna be here for about three hours. So just buckle up. I'm kidding. I actually went really short in the first service. So don't get too nervous, all right? But no, we, we're continuing verse by verse through uh, the gospel of Luke. We started uh, our verse by verse study of the scripture in January. We did the book of Daniel. Then we moved on to the book of Colossians. Now we're in the gospel of Luke and we are preaching verse by verse through the scripture, probably over the next 20 or 30 years to preach through the whole Bible. One of many reasons, okay? There's a lot of reasons, but one of those reasons uh, I just kind of discovered all over again this week as I was studying some stats from the Barna Group and from the Family Research Council. And uh, they're, they're, they did some studies and they pulled some stats that said things like this, that 21% of regular church attenders have a biblical worldview. Did you catch that? 21% of people who regularly attend church actually have a biblical worldview. 80% of Christians believe they have one, okay? And you might be in the room thinking, man, I'm a Christian, I'm here a lot, you know, I've got a biblical worldview, okay? Perception is different from reality. 
80% of Christians believe they have a biblical worldview, but when they actually were tested and questioned on some things about the way they think and what they believe, it was found that 19% actually had a biblical worldview. So perception is way off from reality. It's just by and large true that most people who consider themselves to be Christians in America do not know the scriptures. They don't understand it. They might know of one verse. They might know of a few verses. We have a, a very Facebook, Instagram, Twitter understanding of the scripture, a mean knowledge of the scripture. Some of us even kind of have a, a devotional understanding of the scripture where you kind of read one verse out of context and, and you get kind of a prayer there to, to, to pray. That's a big difference. There's a big difference from doing a devotional and actually studying the scripture. Huge difference. Clearly, we perceive, the American church perceives that they have a biblical worldview, but we don't. An overwhelming, the vast majority of Christians, people who regularly attend church, clearly do not have a biblical worldview. And so that's why we're studying the scriptures, that we begin to have a, a deep understanding of the scriptures so that we know what God wants us to know in his revealed word. So that's why we are studying the scripture verse by verse. That's why we've made it our mission to walk through the Bible, at least as long as I'm here. I guess if you don't like it, you can find a way to get rid of me or go somewhere else, I don't know, okay? So, but that's what we're doing here. So in these verses today, here's what we're gonna learn. We're gonna learn about the faith dynamic, the identity and nature of Jesus's house, his family, and then we're also going to see and discover some things about Jesus's identity and nature in these verses. So we're going to read 41 through 52. Fabian's going to come and, and read for us. And as he comes, would you stand as we honor the word of God? Paul told Timothy to devote yourself to the public reading and teaching of scripture. And we see that oftentimes throughout the scripture, when the scripture is read, uh, the people of God stand in reverence for the word of God. So Fabian. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Good morning, City Fam. Hope City, what up? My name's Fabian. I'm 42. I'm married to my beautiful wife, Sonia. We have four children. I serve on the media team and host the Men's City Group on Saturday mornings. I'll be reading Luke chapter 2, verse 41 to 52. <clears throat> Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious leaders, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. Amen. Thanks, sir. Thanks, Fabian. You can be seated. All right, let's talk about this for a little bit. Again, we see some things about Jesus' family, his house. 
And then we learn some things about Jesus himself in these verses. So, so let's break this down. Number one, Jesus's house consistently attended the house. Jesus's house, like his family, consistently attended the house. You're like, where are you getting that? Verse 41, it says this, every year as usual, Jesus's parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. Every year, as usual, Jesus's family consistently and regularly went to the house because as devout Jews, they would have been very disciplined in their daily prayer times, usually three times a day, 30 minutes each, about an hour and a half a day. They would have been religious. They would have been very faithful and consistent to attend synagogue each week where they would worship and hear the reading and the teaching of scripture. They would have been faithful to the annual celebrations and festivals that all Jews would participate in. They would have remembered the Sabbath day every week to keep it holy, just like the Lord said, right? These are devout, faithful, pious, pious, consistent Jews. That's Jesus's family every day, every week, every year as usual. So let me ask you, is your house consistently and regularly going to the house? Is that a usual thing for your family? Like it was for Jesus's family. Now, some of you are thinking right now, and I get it, but, but Clayton, listen, <laughs> yeah, that was true for Jesus's family, but maybe you didn't know that the church isn't the literal house of God anymore. And, and listen, I, I understand that in a sense. In, in a sense, yes, that is true. The, the church, like our church, like this building is not the literal house of God anymore, at least not in the sense that the temple was. But the writer of Hebrews even tells us that the temple itself wasn't actually the literal house of God. It was just a replica. It was an earthly replica of the throne of God, of the temple that's in heaven. In fact, Colossians, Paul tells us in Colossians, when we study Colossians, um, Paul said this about the temple and the sacrifices and the, and the, the dietary restrictions, and every, all of it, everything that, that the Jews would, would do in worship to God and to be in relationship with God, Paul said it was all a shadow. It was all a shadow of the reality and the reality is Christ. So, so even the temple in before Jesus's day or in Jesus's day, even the temple was just a, a replica of the real throne room and presence of God in heaven. And, it, and even the temple, even in Jesus' day, it was just a shadow, Paul said. It was a shadow of the reality and the reality is Jesus. In the new covenant, Paul would say it like this. You, now Christian, believer, you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. If you're a follower of Jesus, Ephesians 1 says that at that moment that you gave your life to Christ, you received the Holy Spirit. That's the presence of God living inside of you, dwelling inside of you, giving a love for Jesus, a hatred for sin, a passion for the things of God. That, that's the Holy Spirit. That's, that's where that comes from. That's the, that's the Holy Spirit. You're the temple of the living God, Paul said. And so you and I now in the new covenant, New Covenant teaches that you and I are now the temple of the living God, that we are the house of God. But watch this, wherever your spiritual family gathers together is a house. And just as you received the Holy Spirit when you were 
born again, when you became a believer in Jesus, you were born again into a new family, a spiritual family. You and I as followers of Jesus are spiritual. We're brothers, spiritual brothers and sisters in Christ. We are spiritual family and we have a father that we love and that we worship together. We're a spiritual family. And so wherever your house, whenever your house gets together with your spiritual family, that's the house of God, wherever that happens, wherever the spiritual family gathers to worship their father. That could be outside at a playground, at a park. It could be in your home with a small group. Uh, it, it could be in a building like this. It, it, wherever the spiritual family, believers in Jesus comes together, that, that's the house of God in the sense that brothers and sisters in Christ, a spiritual family are meeting together to worship their father. Jesus's family consistently, his house consistently attended. They came together to the house to worship their father. And Jesus clearly loved being at his father's house. In verse 46, when his parents are asking him, or trying to find out where he's at and they discover him after everyone's left, they've all gone back home to Nazareth. They discover him still in the temple. He didn't leave, he never left. They were all done, Passover's over, they're going back home and Jesus stays behind. It's almost like he, he didn't get enough. He loved being in his father's house. He, he stayed behind. He even tells his parents when they can't find him, you should have assumed I would be in my father's house. The original languages give us the idea of either being in the house or being about his father's business. So Jesus was saying, you should have assumed I'd be in my father's house about my father's business. That, that's, what, that's what Jesus is saying here. I, I love being with my father and I love being in a place with the people of God, talking about God and worshiping God. You should have assumed this is where I would be in my father's house. This is actually Jesus's first confession that he's God. Jesus said, you should have known I'd been my father's house. You see, to a Jew, if you're the firstborn son of your father, you have equal substance and value as your dad. The firstborn son in the Jewish faith would receive the inheritance from their father, making them of the same value and worth as their dad simply by being a son. And so when Jesus says that Yahweh, that I am, is my father, any Jew would have realized what Jesus was saying was that him and the father are one. He, he's saying he's of equal substance and value as his dad. Jesus later would make it much more clear. He would say, the father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. The same confession we see right here. I'm in my father's house. The father and I are one. We are of the same value and substance. So Jesus here is confessing that he knows he's God. He's claiming that he is God in the flesh, not because of any work. He hasn't been baptized yet. That's gonna happen in the next chapter, all right? He hadn't been baptized yet. He hadn't done anything yet. No, he is a son of God. He is a child of God. He is the son, the son of God by his very nature and essence. He's not the son of God because he gets baptized. That, that hadn't even happened yet. He's God by his very nature and essence. Same thing is true for you and I. We become children of God. 
when we're born again into a new spiritual family. It's not through any work that we could perform, getting baptized or taking the Lord's Supper or giving enough money or going to church enough times. No, we are made children of God when we are born again into a spiritual family. And when we're born again, we begin to have, we, or we have by a miracle of God in our hearts, we become children of God. It's who we are in our very nature and essence now. We are now kids because of our faith in Jesus, the son, the firstborn son of God. So Jesus says, I'm God. He's claiming it here. He's confessing that he realized he knows who he is, but Jesus is also, we learn in these verses, fully man. He's fully God. He's fully man. Verse 52, look what it says. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with people. In other words, here's how Jesus grew up. He grew up mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and socially. That's how Jesus grew up. And what a great prayer to pray over your kids, that they would grow in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man, mentally, emotionally, physically, spiritually, and socially. This whole, this whole picture here, it just reminds me of Joshua in Exodus chapter 33. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses, the leader of the nation of Israel, goes into the tent of meeting. This is before there's ever a, a temple they have a tent that they would make and it was called the tent of meeting and that's where Moses would go and meet with God and it says that God would speak with Moses and Moses would speak with God like a friend speaks to a friend. And so the glory of God would come down out of heaven, fill this temple and Moses would go into the tent of meeting and meet with God. But there was someone else in the tent of meeting with Moses and God as Moses spoke with God. A boy named Joshua. Joshua was Moses' assistant, young man at the time. And it says in Exodus 33 that when God was done meeting with Moses, Moses would leave. And it says Joshua would stay behind. He wasn't in a hurry to get out of there. Moses was done, but he wasn't done. He, he wasn't... He, he wasn't trying to get to Applebee's or Chili's or, you know, wherever it is you're about to go to London. He wasn't trying to go home and watch the Cowboys or the Chiefs or anything like that. He was in no hurry. Why, why do you think that was? Why would Joshua stay behind? Well, my, my guess is if you just saw God speaking with a man and a man speaking back with God, you might be a little shocked by that. You might be like, what is happening here? God has come down and he's in this tent and he's speaking with Moses. I mean, it must have been the most amazing encounter experience with God because Joshua couldn't get enough of it. And when Moses was done, Joshua just stayed behind. He had nowhere else to be because he wanted to be there in that moment with God in his presence. The scripture says in the presence of God is the fullness of joy and eternal pleasure is at his right hand. So if you're in the presence of God, you got nowhere else to be. There's nowhere else you would rather be. There was nowhere else Joshua wanted to be than to be in that tent with God in that moment. And so he would stay behind. And you know what ended up happening with Joshua? He grew in wisdom 
and in stature and in favor with God and man. And then when it was time for Moses to depart and for someone else to take over the leadership of the nation of Israel, who did God pick? Joshua. Man, what a, what a great picture, parents. What, what a great picture of something we can tangibly see and pray for. A, a passion for the presence of God. Kids that love being in the presence. Kids that love God so much that they just want to be in his presence. They, they love being here. They love going to church. I mean, imagine your kids waking you up. Hey, time to go to church. Get up, get dressed. Time to go, right? I'm not sure many of us have that experience, but, but, but what a great picture. What a great image to just see and then to pray for and to pray into that our kids would love being in the presence of God and with their family of God, worshiping God and hearing from God. What a, what a great picture because it was true of Joshua and it obviously was certainly true of, of Jesus, but maybe you're like, well, Jesus was the son of God. So, so, you know, he doesn't really get credit. Okay. Let's take Joshua. Joshua loved the presence of God and he grew in wisdom. He grew in stature and in favor with God and people and God used him in a powerful way. What a great prayer to pray over our kids that they would grow with wisdom, stature and favor with God and people where they begin to develop a faith of their own, a faith that survives high school and college, a faith where they love being here. But for that to ever be true, we, we got to get them here. And listen, I know that's tough. I know it's difficult. Not personally, <laughs> but I know because my wife has told me. You see, for the last 15 years that we've had kids, my wife's had to do it on her own. I've been in ministry. I've been up early. I've been at the church working, preaching. And so my wife for 15 years has brought our kids on her own consistently. And I know because she's told me <laughs> that's not always easy. It can be pretty difficult. I heard the stories of screaming babies being dropped off at the nursery and it's a little worse for her. She's a little bit more embarrassed when it's her kids because I've always been a pastor at the church. So it feels a little bit worse when, you know, the pastor kids or babies or whatever are screaming and they don't want to go to the nursery. Or they don't want to go to their class. We, we, she's been there. We, we've been there with screaming kids in the middle of a service. We, we even had uh, one when he was a baby. I won't say who, cause I'm trying not to embarrass my kids as much anymore, but um, we, we had one in the middle of a service uh, trying to poop so loud, so loud. He was grunting and couldn't, you know, struggling. And so he's making a lot of noise and he's making enough noise where everybody can hear him. And then he made so much noise that when the result came, there was an explosion and you could hear that too. All right. So there's noise before there was noise after, and then it was so bad it, it stunk. And so everyone not only is looking around because they hear it now they're smelling it and she's running out, you know, the back of the service with, with, with our son, you know, who's made all this noise and made this Stinky mess, right? I mean, I mean, we, we, we get it. Like, I, I, at least I know my wife gets it, all right? It, it's hard. It's hard getting your kids up. It's hard getting them here. It's hard when they don't want to go. It's hard dropping them off at a, at a class. 
right? But if, you, if you've got those tough, kind of tough grandparents in your life, you know what they would probably tell you? Yeah, it's hard. Anything that's hard is valuable. Everything valuable is hard. They'd probably start telling you about how they walked to school, right? In the snow, both ways and uphill both ways or whatever, right? They would start telling you about how, yeah, we did it too, right? I mean, yeah, they, so the what? They scream, they cry. They, eventually they stop screaming and crying, right? Yeah, I mean, eventually they, they get over. They don't want to go to school either, but you know, we, we made you go to school, right? I mean, if you got those kind of grandparents in your life, it's a, it's a good thing when, when, when you've got younger kids and, and you kind of want to make all the excuses and you want to tell them your sad sob story and they're kind of like, <laughs> so? I mean, we, we did all the same things and we, we still brought you. My mom, on her own with four boys, consistently took us to church and she was on her own. And she fought us the whole way, I promise you, right? <laughs> getting up, getting us ready, getting us there after church. I mean, she fought us the whole way. But you know what, as far as my mom was concerned, she did her job. She did her responsibility. She consistently had us, her house, at the house. She prayed for us. She talked to us about the scripture. And as far as she's concerned, as far as she is accountable and responsible, she did her job. Nothing's guaranteed. But she did her job. We leave the results to God. As far as my wife and I are concerned, we're, we're doing our job. And I'm not trying to brag, I'm just saying we're consistently here. We're talking with our kids about the scripture, we're praying with them, we do that stuff at home and we get them here. We're, we're doing our part, we're, doing our, we're, we're, we're living up to our responsibility as parents to get our house to the house. I'm not guaranteed a Joshua, but I'm gonna do my part. And parents, you need to do your part. You got to consistently get your house to the house. It's where your family joins together with the family of God. And if you're going to be consistent, that means you got to prioritize it. And that's the second thing. That's the second thing we learned about Jesus' family. Jesus' house prioritized attending the house. Jesus' house prioritized attending the house. Do you remember what Gee, the people were, were amazed at Jesus for. Look in verse 47. The teachers were amazed at Jesus's understanding his wisdom in spiritual things. That's what these teachers were amazed at. They were amazed at his understanding and his wisdom in spiritual things, in the things of God. You see, most of us want ourselves and our kids to be known for worldly things instead of spiritual things. Let's just be real, let's just be honest. It's so much more tempting. I'm right there with you, right? I've got, I've got teenagers. I've got boys in baseball and basketball and football and everything else. I, I get it. I, I want them to be, I'm just gonna be honest with you. I want them to be good at those things. And I want other people to see that they're good at those things, right? That, that's the, the pride that's in me. I, I want that. I'm just, I'll be real with you. But a lot of times it's true of me too. We care more about how well they're known for worldly things than we do about how well they're known for spiritual things. These, these, these teachers, these, these 
people in the temple, they were amazed at Jesus's understanding and his wisdom when it came to spiritual matters. And because we, we care whether it's about ourselves or our kids to be known for more worldly things, not, 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 not necessarily always bad things, but, but, just, but not spiritual things. We, so we give ourselves to those things. Those things come, become the priority instead of our spiritual lives because that's what we wanna be known for. We wanna succeed in those areas. And so we prioritize those areas above our spiritual lives and above our kids' spiritual lives, which in turn shows our kids what's important and what's not important. It just does. Vodi Bauckham, a popular pastor in our country, he's also the Dean of Theology of a Christian university in Africa. He said this, I love this, I've shared this with you before, I'll share it with you again. If I teach my kids to keep their eye on the ball, but not on Jesus, I have failed. If I teach my kids to keep my eye on the ball, but not on Jesus, I failed. Spiritual growth doesn't happen on accident. It happens when it becomes a priority for your family. In verse 49, Jesus says to his parents, you should have known I would have been in my father's house. Here's what he's saying. He's saying this relationship with his father transcends all other initiatives, relationships, and values. He's saying it's more important to me. He said, you should have known I would have been in my father's house. He's communicating his heart there. This is more important to me than anything else. My relationship with my father transcends all other initiatives, relationships, and values. I'm reading this book right now called Habits of the Household, and it's about Christian homes developing habits that will help us as parents specifically disciple our kids. And, and some of the things that I, I've, just, I've read in this book have been powerful to me. One of the things that they said uh, in this book is that we become our habits. And the world will form your habits for you but God cares about our habits because they impact our hearts. Our hearts are formed by habits. And so God cares about our habits because they impact our heart. But based on our relationship with our father, which should transcend all else like it did for Jesus, we must reform our habits. We must reject the habits that we have just taken on because we're just a part of culture we got to reject those and we got to recreate. we got to reform new habits because while we all have great intentions, who you are and who your children are becoming are completely based on habits, not intention. It's completely based on your priorities, not your good intentions. So if you look at your habits, who are you becoming? Who are your kids becoming? Now, for those of us in the room that would say this, this is sounding a lot like legalism. Like this is kind of getting a little legalistic, Clayton. Like, I don't know what to think about this, all right? Um, legalism would be to say, if you do this, if you get better habits, God will love you more. And if you don't do what I'm saying or what I'm talking about today, that God's gonna love you less. That would be legalism. Legalism would be to say, you've gotta change your habits. You gotta do better and try harder so that you can enter into the kingdom of God. That would be legalism. That, that's not what we're saying today. It's all, it's all about the why. And we're about to get to that here in just a second. It's all, it's all about the why. No, I think the issue is, why, the reason why things like this sound like legalism to us sometimes is because we've erred so far on the inconsistency and unfaithfulness side that even just the remote 
mention of being faithful and consistent and being disciplined and having new good habits, the very sound of that starts to sound a little bit legalistic to us because we've erred so far on the other side. We, we miss so much more than we make it, right? That anything, any conversation when we talk about being there and being consistent and being faithful and making it sounds legalistic to us. No, no, legalism is all based on the why. And Jesus's family knew the why behind all of this. And that's the third thing you've got to understand. Jesus's house knew why they were attending the house. They knew why they were regular. They knew why they were consistent. And any Jewish family knew why they were regular and consistent and faithful daily, weekly, and yearly. They knew, they knew why. You see, this journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem took days. It took days to go and celebrate the Passover. It took sacrifice. It took devotion. It was a dangerous trip. That's why it says here that they were traveling in a caravan. So the length of the trip, they're, they're walking, the, the danger, the effort, notice it did not keep them from going. It did not keep them from being consistent. Whatever the length of the trip was, whatever the danger involved, whatever the effort it took, it did not keep them from being consistent, from being regular as usual with the house of God. Now on a journey like this, walking for days, parents, can you imagine the sheer amount of questions you would get from your kids, right? Like what, what are some of the questions? Are we there yet? How much longer is it? You know, we, 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 when we would answer those questions, we, we usually answered it in movie times. Okay, you got like three or four more movies, okay? One time we drove to Florida and it was like, you got like 30 movies to watch, okay? And then, and then, we'll, be, and then we'll be there, okay? Um, if you're in Jesus's day and you're walking from Nazareth to Jerusalem, it's like, are we there yet? How much longer is it gonna be? It's, it's, gonna, be an, it's gonna be several more days. You know, I'm sorry. It's, uh, days? <laughs> yeah. That's the journey. I mean, imagine all of the questions you would get from your kids. And you're like, well, how do you know they would really ask? I'm a parent, okay? Every parent in this room knows their kids are gonna ask, are we there yet? How much longer is it going to take? But here's the other reason I know. Because in Deuteronomy chapter six, God tells the nation of Israel through his prophet Moses, he says, when you're doing all these things, when you're celebrating the Passover, when you're going to synagogue each week, uh, when you're performing these celebrations and these festivals and, and, you're, and, you're, and you're restricting your diet in all these ways and, and you're, you're sacrificing these, when, when you're doing all of these things, God says it in Deuteronomy 6, he says to the nation of Israel, when your kids ask why, and he said, they're going to. Your kids are going to ask, God told, God told Israel through, and they're kind of like, who, who's shocked by that? Of course our kids are gonna ask why. But, but God says to the nation of Israel, your kids are going to ask why. They're going to say, what's the meaning of all of this? God said, your kids are going to ask you, why are we doing all of this? And when they ask why, Deuteronomy chapter six, when they ask why, here's what you're gonna tell your kids. God actually tells them, here's the why. Here's the why behind everything that we're reading here today. Here's the why. Here's what you're going to tell your kids. Here's the why. You're going to tell your kids when they ask why, why are we doing all this? What's the meaning of this? 
You're going to tell them that the Lord brought us out of slavery from Egypt with a mighty hand and with an outstretched arm. And we are celebrating in Passover, this is what they were celebrating, that the judgment of God that wiped out Egypt, that we deserved to, passed over us. When God saw the blood of the lamb that was shed in our place, covering our house. That's why. That's why we're going to Passover. That, that's why we go to synagogue every, that, that's why, that's all, why we, we, we offer this lamb as a sacrifice that's gonna die in our place for our sin. That, that's why we're doing all of it because we're looking back and we're remembering that God rescued us out of slavery to Pharaoh and to Egypt. He rescued us. And here's how he rescued us. He judged Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And we deserved it too, but the judgment of God passed over us because we sacrificed a perfect spotless lamb that died in our place. And then we took that blood and we put it over the doorpost, doorpost of our house so that when the spirit of God came through and wiped out the firstborn son of every Egyptian, The spirit of God would pass over our house. The spirit of judgment would pass over our house because of the blood of the lamb. That's why we're doing this. Does that sound familiar? Does that story sound familiar to, to anyone? If you're a Christian, it probably sounds very familiar because it's our why too. It's our why. Why are we here right now? Why are we singing these songs? Why are we teaching from the scripture? Why do we give? Why do we serve? Why, why do we do any of this, right? Why do we drive maybe 20 minutes to downtown Lubbock in our air-conditioned vehicles? Why do we sacrifice all of that to be here? <laughs> why? Same reason. We are here celebrating that the judgment of God has passed over us that we deserved for our sin because a perfect spotless lamb died in our place for our sin and by shedding his blood, that blood covers our sin. And so God rescued us from slavery to sin with his mighty nail pierced hands and outstretched arms. And so that's why we're here. That's why we, we do everything that we do. That, that's our why. Not, not to be right with God. Here's the why. But because we've been made right with God. You see, legalism would say we do all of this in order to be right with God. No, love says I'm doing all of this because I've been made right with God, because I'm a child of God, I love my dad and I want to be in his house and I wanna be with my brothers and sisters. That's totally different. That was Jesus's house. Is it your house? Man, I want it to be, I want it to be my house. Do your friends, do your kids ask why? Why are we doing this? Why, why do you do that? Why do you go to that church? Why are you reading your Bible? Why do you give? Why do you pray? Why do you, why do, you do all that? If they're not asking why, then maybe something's off. 
if the people closest to you aren't asking you, why, why are you so devoted? Why, why are you one of those radical, kind of crazy Christians? Why, why, why are you like that? If no one's asking you that, maybe something is off in your house. Maybe the priorities need to change. Maybe you need to form some new habits that transcend all other initiatives, values, and relationships. Two takeaways this morning. Here's the first one. First one is this, you need to get your house to the house. You need to get your house to the house. And parents, that starts with you. These verses tell us that every year, Jesus' parents went as usual. It starts with you. Whether you have kids or not, it starts, it starts with you. Men and women of God raise children of God. It starts with you. And so if you miss more than you make it right now, maybe the Holy Spirit's moving and kind of working in your heart right now saying, we, we, we at least need to flip that and start making it more than we miss. Not to be right with God, but because you love your father and you love being with your spiritual family and you want your kids to grow up in that kind of environment so that you do your job. You, you, you hold up your end of the bargain, the responsibility to raise your kids to follow Jesus. So that's the first takeaway. Second takeaway is this, Jesus is God in a bond. Tell you that all the time. It's an easy way to remember it. Jesus was fully man. He was fully God. He was God in Abad. Jesus said, I'm in my father's house. We are of equal value in substance. Jesus would make it much more explicitly clear later when he would say, Jesus, uh, the, when Jesus would say, the father and I are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the father. Now here's how, here's what's interesting about this as it relates to everything we're talking about today. Because, because if Jesus is God and he said he is and he claimed that he is and he proved it by rising from the grave, that means that Jesus, as he said, is Lord of the Sabbath. Jesus said, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. And, and he told his disciples and he told some of the Jews what the Sabbath was really about. You see, they thought it was kind of the rules and the regulations and it, they were doing it out of a, a sense of duty, okay? And, and so Jesus comes along and he says, no, I'm Lord of the Sabbath and let me tell you what the Sabbath is really about. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Like man's not made to serve the Sabbath. No, here's what Jesus said. Sabbath was made for man. The Sabbath is for you, it's to serve you. It's a gift because you need it. Jesus said, Man wasn't made for the Sabbath to serve some sort of rule and regulation. No, the Sabbath was made for man. It's a gift that God has given to us. And I just wanna close with this, with this picture. I think it's probably a new covenant picture of, of Sabbath. Because for some of us, we might say, Clayton, <laughs> um, we're in the new covenant now. We don't really you know, follow all those rules and, and, and regulations and stuff. Um, yes and no. I, I get where you're coming from, but, but let me show you this, this picture, I think, of what new covenant Sabbath really looks like. In Luke chapter 10, Mary and Martha are hosting Jesus. And Martha is busy with the food and 
serving and cleaning up and getting everything ready and putting everything out and getting everything together and cleaning up and all that. And she's, she's very busy. And, and, and Mary is just sitting at the feet of Jesus, just hanging out with Jesus. And Martha's a little perturbed by this. She's like, Jesus, I'm over here working my butt off, right? I'm over here doing all this stuff for you. And Mary is just sitting there being lazy at your feet. And here's what Jesus says to Martha. Martha, you are worried and upset about many things. They're not bad things, but you're worried and upset about many things. And here's what he said about Mary. Mary has chosen the one thing that's necessary. She's chosen what's better, Jesus said. It's the one thing that's actually necessary. And I think it's a great picture of the Sabbath and God's gift of the Sabbath to us to rest and break from all of the other things that have us so worried and upset. They're not bad things in and of themselves, but it's to, it's to break from all of the worry and upset over many things to rest and focus on the one necessary thing. And that's to be at the feet of Jesus. That's to be with our father in his house, with our spiritual family. That's the one necessary thing. Let, let, let me explain it to you like this. If you're in a desert with your bottle of water, you're not trading your bottle of water for gold, for money, for a new job, for a bat and glove, for a basketball, for a football. You're not, you're not trading that bottle of water for anything. Why? Because you're in a desert. The scripture would say, you're in a dry and weary land. And if you're in a desert, that bottle of water's everything. It's worth more than anything. Sabbath is recognizing, I, I live in a dry and weary land and I'm busy and upset about so many other things. And there's so many other great things, good things that need my time and attention, my devotion, my love, my care, my discipline. There's a lot of things that need, but there's really only one necessary thing in this dry and weary land where there is no water. And that is living water and the bread of life. I need you, Jesus. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. It's about choosing what's better this day so that it begins to remind us and it begins to reform that, that habit and that spiritual practice in our lives that shows us and reveals to us. It's a confession. Just being here this morning is a confession that I'm gonna put aside all the many things that I've got going on and I'm gonna do what's really, I'm gonna do that one thing that's really, I'm gonna choose what's better. And I'm gonna be here with Jesus, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. Because I have to, no. Because I need to, absolutely. Because I want to, you bet. Let's pray. God, I pray that right now in this moment, your spirit would come, God, and move in our hearts. And God, just reveal to us the, the, the worry and the stress and the devotion to, to so many other good things that just cannot replace 
our love and our devotion to the one necessary thing. And that's to, that's to Jesus, it's to our spiritual family. And so God, I, I just pray in these moments, you would, you would speak to our hearts, you would, you would reveal to us, you, you would just solidify the why in our hearts and in our minds. God, out of the overflow of that, there would be habit change. There would be life change in Jesus' name. Amen.